0: Hi, you're tuned into 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Max Lambert, who's a former postdoc and a current senior scientist with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Welcome to the show, Max.
1: Nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So great to have you here. I actually got the tip to interview you from someone else at CalX, John the Reptilian who's a DJ. I don't know if he's really into reptiles, but we're going to talk about reptiles today. So it's very apt that he sent the tip. But yeah, apparently you were just in the news about some research that you were doing while you were still a postdoc here, right? So could you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing Mm -hmm. up in Jewel Lake?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So part of my my love of my life are, are turtles, which is actually not why I was at Berkeley at all. It's more of a, a kind of a side project between my my real field season that I was actually funded to do, um, which is actually mostly up in Portland and in Seattle area. But you know, coming actually out of my undergrad, and it's been kind of years in the making a lot of my my interest is in the Western pond turtle, which is California's only native species of, of freshwater turtle. It's imperiled, so it's currently undergoing review for listing under the U.S. Endangered Species Act, which is kind of a fancy way of saying we think it's a really bad place, and so a bunch of Scientists and policy folks are looking at the evidence to make it endangered. You know, list, listing it that way. But one of the the threats that we think is out there for the species is um, another invasive or invasive species: the red ear slider turtle, which many folks may be familiar with from pet stores. They are the inspiration for the teenage mutant turtles. So, kind of the uh, banners around their eye are the, the red stripe on the sliders. Released all over the world, they're native to kind of the Mississippi River area, but they are so common in California. There are literally millions of them in California. And it we don't really have any good idea of whether they're impacting native turtles anywhere in the world, especially here in California. And, you know, as an undergraduate, we did a project where we removed all the sliders in Davis, which is not too far from Berkeley, and saw that over the next couple of years, the Western pond turtles got kind of bigger, fatter, healthier than um, they were beforehand, which kind of gave us some first glimpses that maybe these reddier sliders that are not native are competing with our native species. And so one of my kind of goals was to replicate that project um, in a couple of different places and drew like, was one of them. A couple of the sites were kind of towards Santa Cruz area. Angelica is great because it's really close to campus. It's got a nice population of western pond turtles and regular sliders. It's a place where a lot of people in the East Bay love coming to, you know, watch ducks or other birds and turtles. And so it's kind of nice also way to be part of the broader person community in addition to the, the wildlife communities. So that, that's kind of how that work got started was keeping tabs in our nice little semi-urban population up there and and seeing whether sliders were impacting our, our Western pond turtles.
0: Okay. So first off, you're saying that people in Berkeley or the route surrounding area are in fact seemingly going up to Jewel Lake and depositing pet red sliders. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And you would highly recommend against that, right? <laughs>
1: I would well. One, it's illegal, so doing it is against state law. but don't yeah. do that. And it's you know, I, I highly recommend it. Not only you know, if you only care about the environment and wildlife, you shouldn't do that for sure. If you care about your turtle that you had as a pet, hypothetically loved at some point in time, it's also not great for them. You know, a lot of things that are pets. Aren't necessarily great at being outdoors. Oftentimes they miss limbs because things like coyotes or raccoons or otters bite their limbs off. Um, they catch diseases that I can get inside and they're always kind of being beaten up. You know, up there, Julie's great, you know, pretty well contained, but there's still the road that has a lot of bikers going past it so you can get hit by a bike and to go nest. That's a tough life to be an introduced turtle, too. So for the welfare of your own former pet, don't do it. Don't let it go.
0: Yeah. Do you have any recommendation for, I mean, hopefully like you would, if you get a pet, you would just kind of, see it through its days. But what would be a better solution if you were thinking about going to Jewel Lake with your turtle? Yeah,
1: well, the first part of what you just said there, you know, the challenge of the turtle they live so long. Um, seeing it through its days, when you buy a turtle that's the size of a quarter, I don't think a lot of people anticipate the fifth year commitment they may have ahead of them. And the turtle becomes, you know, the size of a dinner plate and poops a lot and smells really bad and clean the tank out constantly. Um, so before you even buy a turtle or take one on, just think of the commitment you're undertaking. But yeah, if you don't want it anymore, you know, it's hard because there, there are so many of them out there that rehome, you know, but trying to find someone else to take care of your turtle and rehome it, there are some places that will take them off your hands. But again, there's so many people who are kind of keen to dump their turtles that there's just not a lot of places to put them at this point in time. So the part is a broader conversation on rethinking the pet industry also and whether things like freshwater turtles should even be there in the first place because they're pretty really complicated uh, as pets and they become an environmental crisis after the fact.
0: So. Then on the science you're actually doing. So you talked about removing the red ear sliders from the area. Did you actually see them? Do they interact? Do you watch them interact with the native turtles? Oh, yeah, for sure they
1: interact. I mean, but you know, the, the kind of funny conundrum we have is that there is some kind of observational work from lab experiments that sliders are pretty aggressive kind of bitey beasts. And people have done this work in Europe or some, on some Asian-Turk species looking at how the sliders kind of bite them or are the aggressors. There's kind of funny counterintuitive thing with the Western pond turtle. It's... Um, a grumpy butt uh, and they don't really like being near any other turtle native turtles of the same species or other ones and So we try to avoid the, you know being near other turtles at all costs and occasionally when we've actually watched western pond turtles the native species out there basking doing whatever the turtles do and a slider comes by it's usually the pond turtle that's actually the aggressor towards the slider rather than the other way around and so kind of by being more like an In different blob, the sliders do better because they're okay just kind of hanging out and being aggressed and being on, you know, little piles of turtles, but yeah... They'll, you know, they'll bite at each other. They'll kind of shove each other off of basking logs. You know, basking may sound silly, but basking is really important for turtles, which are uh, the ectotherms They need to basically take in sunlight to be able to kill parasites and how their metabolism works so they can become sexually active for the years, and digest their foods, things of that sort. So when they're abandoning their basking environments, they're actually taking a pretty big metabolic hit. So yeah, they they do a lot of biting and pushing, which seems very unturtle-like, but it is very much turtle-like. <laughs>
0: So you, you're saying the Western pond turtles, they don't like hanging out with their turtles. So I've been to Jewel Lake and I've seen like, you know, there'll like be the logs oh, yeah. and there'll be turtles all out. Are those generally going to be red sliders because they're kind of all close to each other or... It really is a
1: mix. I mean, the challenge we have with a lot of, um, one, Julie's not a natural body of water. It used to be a creek that's been kind of dammed, which is why it's a a pond or a lake now, but there isn't really other basking habitat there. So they don't have a choice. If they want to bask, they have to kind of be clumped together on that log. Um, If you put out a bunch more logs, those turtles would immediately pff, spread out. So when they're given no other choice because the density of turtles is really high or there's nowhere else to bask, you're going to see them basking side by side. Um, but yeah, if you go to Jewel Lake, you'll see a mixture of turtles. Some will be sliders, some will be native Western pond turtles. You know, a grad student in uh, Environmental Science Policy Management at Berkeley, Robin Lopez, has some great pictures of Western pond turtles on that log. So they're, they're, they'll are be there.
0: And then, so you said you did find evidence that the Western pond turtle was kind of Doing better, thriving when you removed the the slider, but that was up in UC Davis. So did you find the same thing here at Drew Lake?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, we didn't actually get to finish that project, not fully yet. We're hoping to over the next few years. We actually did a really big pivot last year and changed the research. And only, you know, it wasn't even the pandemic that caused that. We part of our other study site that we're doing replicating the experiment that uh, was in Santa Cruz. And we discovered a new disease uh, impacting the pond turtles down there. And it was scary because where I am up here now in Washington, that the same disease has completely shut off conservation for the species because it basically rots the shell on the animals and works its way down to the body, cavity, and bone. Shell is very important for turtles and it keeps them free from pathogens and also getting eaten. So having it rot away is not great. And... Finding this disease, the pathogen down in, in Santa Cruz had me completely shift what I was doing to seeing if that disease is more prevalent in more places in the Bay Area, how bad it actually was. And so we collected the data we need to for kind of um, a preliminary kind of status assessment of how the sliders and monitors are doing at Doolake. But we never kind of got around to that, a, big, a bigger part of that experiment. So maybe one day we will, we're hoping to over the next few years, but the disease kind of took
0: priority. And you know the disease, like, you know the pathogen for the disease. So yeah,
1: it's it's a, it's a pathogen called Aminomyces testivorans, which literally means like the shell devouring fungus. It's pretty pretty sad turtle fungus.
0: Yeah, uh, that sounds unpleasant. Wait, is it affecting all the turtles? Like, or just the Western pond turtle? Is it affecting both the red-eared slider and the Western pond turtle? Yeah, you know, so the
1: crazy thing was this, we knew, the disease, we knew the disease before we knew the pathogen, which is not surprising. Um, it's usually how it goes, right? You have to watch these things for about a 10 years now, and the pathogen was only just described to science in late 2019, like three months before COVID hit, because fungi are really hard. No one funds wildlife diseases, yada, yada, there's a whole whole variety of problems with it. And so we know that we have pathogens here, you know, there is disease in Western pond turtles. We were finding the pathogen on sliders, for instance, they don't seem to be diseased the same way that the Western pond turtles do. And so it does seem like the sliders can be a reservoir um, and be infected by this pathogen, but not really be succumbing to its impacts. Um, there are other species of turtle across the U.S. that are closely related to the Western Pond turtle that are also endangered species that we are now finding this disease in. You know, things like terrapins out in, in North Carolina, some more endangered species in the Michigan area. So this pathogen and disease is spreading, it seems like, um, away from the West Coast, as pathogens do, which is unfortunate. And so it does seem like it's affect affecting some species of turtle, but not all species of turtle in the same way.
0: Uh- So another reason to not release turtles (laughs) because you never know what diseases you're spreading, yeah.
1: Don't let them go. Keep them inside.
0: Yeah. But so turtles... Aren't even the main thing that you study is what you're saying? You or at least your grad student studies and your postdoc studies were kind of not focused on turtles.
1: Not at all. Uh, turtles have been for, you know, for better or worse, have been kind of my side project for my entire career. Um, most of my work's been focused on urban frogs, largely, and how how frogs that live in our cities are impacted by pollution and water quality more generally. So that's really been my focus for a good long time.
0: And you're still doing that you're still focused on frogs.
1: For, okay, frogs, among other things. So my current job has been working on, you know, frogs, endangered salmon, mussels, you name it. If it's in the water, we probably are studying it.
0: I don't really, I never had to do field work much, but I'm assuming, you know, you kind of got to focus on a thing when you're doing fieldwork or are you, so like, what's a, what is field work for you like when you're like studying so many different organisms at once? Do you do multiple collections in one go or are you like doing multiple different field seasons? What's going on?
1: Yeah. So it when it was my grad work and my postdoc time, um, the field seasons for for frogs or for turtles, for instance, um, oftentimes had differing different parts of the year. So the frogs I worked with typically breed interactive in kind of late winter, early springtime. Um, so water is still very cold, especially in Portland. So I'm wearing like four layers and neoprene gloves because I'm frigid. And you know, by the time that kind of tapers off is when it becomes turtle season. So I kind of have an extended you know field season from like February ish until July August. I'm um, doing kind of two different Projects, and then I have fall and winter to analyze data and write things up and things of that sort, um, which worked really well for both my PhD and my postdoc time. Postdoc was weird because COVID hit and it, it threw everything into chaos, but such is life. You know, currently I work for the state of Washington as a, a senior scientist, which means that I manage a team of people. So the amount of field work I actually do is like 10 days out of the year for fun uh, or just to kind of see sites. But it's usually mostly my team of people that are doing the, the bulk of the
0: work. So you, are you sad about that or...?
1: I mean, it depends on the day, Um, for sure. I mean, when you have people out there seeing really cool critters and just being, you know, being able to bathe, you know, glorious forests or being out there on a boat and Puget sound. It's hard to uh, empathize with any sort of uh, misery they may have that they watch stuck in front of a computer, all day crunching numbers and and writing things up. But it also is great because I get to spend a lot of time, you know, putting together really important projects that can influence management policy. I still get to do a ton of science every day, a lot of that's, you know, designing studies and analyzing data. So I get to do that kind of fun side of things as well. Yeah.
0: It sounds kind of like you're kind of in a position as an academic PI, but not, not teaching. I don't know, is that kind of like how you would describe your job?
1: There are a lot of na- analogous pieces to being you know, a faculty member. There's no yeah, there's no teaching. I still actually work with undergraduates. I have a few undergraduates at UC Berkeley who I'm still working with on a few projects, we assume a couple times a week on various projects. we working on papers and measuring museum specimens and doing things of that sort. Um, I actually have a doctoral student at Portland State University who has an NSF-funded internship with me, so about half her time is spent for, for PhD for this year working on, on state-funded research, which is pretty cool. So I get to work with students still, both undergraduates and graduate students. But yeah, it's basically writing grants, writing papers, funding, you know, people to go out there and, and have their own salaries and collect data, designing studies of various sorts. So it, there are a lot of analogous situations to basically being a faculty member.
0: Beyond not teaching, or what are like the key differences, you would say? <laughs> A
1: lot of my mediums these days are managing my folks who, who uh, do the research, which is not different from an academic setting per se, except that, you know, being a lab meeting, you're kind of working with students who are kind of actively learning or trajectory, we're all actively learning. Time forever, right? But you know, students, whether undergraduate or graduate student, are learning tons of new skills at the kind of cutting edge of skills and trying to apply that and putting together their own their own kind of independent research project. And that's not quite what I do when I meet with my my folks. You know, we have a set of projects. Sometimes there are projects that have been gone for 15 years that we're kind of updating or tweaking, like long-term experiments that are really kind of beyond a lot of what academics can do because it's not really how funding cycles work for a lot of universities. And so a lot of a lot of it's more um kind of logistics-based meetings and things of that sort, more so than maybe would be in sort of a lab setting. So that's one thing. And then, you know, I know a lot of faculty have like administrative meetings where they're figuring out how to run departments or things of that sort. And I end up in meetings where I'm talking to like the head of the agency or head of a department and figuring out how the science might influence a policy decision or a management decision, which is a completely different kind of part of your brain to use because you're not only translating statistics and p-values and kind of experimental design limitations but also kind of how good the study design might be to someone who may have zero familiarity with with studies and and research but also saying here's how you can take this one like sound bite from this pile of research and do something with it functionally that's been a, a big challenge and really rewarding also because you can have some really interesting conversations that actually can change that people do in the world
0: yeah for sure and i mean you you've been doing this you said since march so still relatively early in it but do you talk to like politicians or do you mostly talk to like people more in a position uh, like you are, not elected?
1: Yeah. So throughout kind of my graduate and postdoc career, I, I did, you know, I, I have talked to politicians a handful of times for a variety of reasons, kind of, you know, pitching them on, you know, some science and their policy or taking kind of a stronger stance on actually turtles and pet trays and things like that sort of, you know, have a little stricter you know pet regulation, things like pollution. So I had to talked to politicians, which is easier to do in some ways than an academic, because you don't necessarily, it's a lot harder to talk to politicians when you're a government funded scientist just in some ways. But throughout my graduate career, I also spoke with a variety of managers from local, you know, regional East Bay um, habitat managers to to state and federal folks who manage wildlife and habitat. So that's been a big part of my career is is having those kind of conversations. And oftentimes those folks have some degree of science background, so the translation is not as strong. I think actually being embedded in an agency, you have a lot more opportunities to engage with people who are making bigger decisions, who may not have a science background the same way that for sure people who have PhDs do, but um, they may have been many, many years removed from even their undergrad days taking a biology class or something like that.
0: So like what happens to reports you generate? Are are you, as an agency, you generate like the science about what's happening with the frogs, what's happening with the turtles, and then it just kind of has to go somewhere where it can be acted on by a legislative body or you're in an agency maybe where you can change things depending on what you find in the science.
1: Oh, if it really kind of depends on the particular policy you might be influencing or management procedure you might be doing. You know, we have a lot of people who, for instance, can can permit the design of a dock. That put over someone in someone's you know backyard. They have a, a marine uh, shoreline uh, as part of their property. So we you know the a, the agency permits that, and so the science that we can do, or even doing literature reviews on the kind of best available science, maybe we'll actually tweak the guidance we give to some of the permitters at the agency on what's okay or whether we should be more stringent and where we are choosing to per, like, place that dock. Are we placing it? A little, like five feet left would that be actually a little better for some of the, the kelp and things like that if they grow there? Or is there really no way to mitigate the impact of this dock and, and kind of synthesizing the science on that to be actually very helpful for guiding people whose job is just to permit? And that if that data is not synthesized in one kind of useful place for those people, they're kind of punting half the time, or they're using kind of really old science that was built into the original policy guidance. So that's one way, and that requires not much in the way of changing policies and, and big sort of management guidance. And there are other things you can do that actually might feed into changing policies that are the outcomes of, of studies uh, that are happening over the longer term. I've obviously been there for short periods of time that I haven't done that yet, but some of the work that we've been doing is actually leading that way. Um, and Washington State, it's great. We have adaptive management built into some of our policy regulations, and so... If you are familiar with the idea of adaptive management, it's kind of what it sounds like, which is you do some management, you see what happens, and then you adapt management to do something a little differently if you kind of learn something new along the way. And so science and policy are kind of you know intricately tied there. And so there are policy changes that the outcome of long-term experiments monitoring that we at the agency are a part of, and that's you know, directly impacting the way we, we do a lot of forestry and timber operations in Washington State, which is a big part of our landscape is, is cutting trees in a relatively sustainable way, which benefits things like salmon, which of course is very important in the Northwest. Anyway, so those are kind of a couple of examples of how, how things happen. They can do everything from just a couple small people changing things on the ground to entire policy changes.
0: So how did you um, decide on moving in this direction after your postdoc? Uh,
1: Honestly, it was flexibility and serendipity. You know, my partner and I, for a whole variety kind of family and personal reasons, wanted to kind of stay in the Northwest, Northern California to, to Washington to kind of be near family at this point in time in our lives. And when you kind of geographically, geographically constrain yourself, your professional options go down quite a bit. And so I was, I was, Pretty amenable to a variety of things, um, academic, private sector, or government. I was kind of looking at a whole uh, variety of things. I just started applying a couple, couple different options. Um, actually I actually had pretty good luck with a couple academic interviews that. It didn't work out for a couple of reasons. One of which was COVID actually canceled one of those jobs, which is unfortunate. But, you know, it was, I think it was like December of last year for 2020, job opened up at Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. It seemed great. You met man- managing a good of people, leading a whole variety of aquatic habitat studies and, and basically being able to guide a pile of research going forward. Seemed like an exciting opportunity. So I threw my name in the hat for that. Love the interviews. I had two rounds of interviews, which actually felt very academic-y in that you had kind of a first round a couple hour phone interview sort of thing. And then I had to give a talk on the second interview, an academic style talk, and then get a bunch of questions. So it all felt very comfortable in that academic sense. And everyone just seemed great. It seemed stoked on the questions I was asking for my, my postdoc and PhD times. They seemed like there was an awful lot of opportunities to collaborate and just do fun work. And so I didn't even really hesitate. It just seemed like a great opportunity. I just jumped on it without thinking of, oh my God, am I leaving academia? That's going to be terrible. And as of now, I don't regret it.
0: How did you decide to do the postdoc after grad school? Just
1: a lot of exciting opportunities. To so my first year at Berkeley, I actually was on an NSF that my postdoc advisor, Brie Rosenbloom, had. And I've been talking to um, Professor Rosenbloom for a couple of years during my PhD before I even finished it. Her work is just you know gets me really excited she has a variety of, of kind of very applied conservation projects and some very kind of fundamental biology evolutionary experiments are her work it's an opportunity to do some whole genome resequencing analysis for a year on, on her NSF. Funding, learned a ton of new skills working with her and just loved working with her in her lab group. They're just phenomenal. And then I got a Smith fellowship through the Society for Conservation Biology, which kept me on for two more years. Um, that was where I was working on kind of my own independent projects on urban pollution up in, up in the Portland and Seattle areas in the Northwest. Uh, and that got me... a the, you know, if you're not if you're not in the conservation biology world, Smith Fellowship is a really great opportunity because it forces you to have mentors who are in academia and in practice, and so they can really balance the idea of doing science that kind of is immediately tractable for some outcome for conservation. It's it not to negate the value of, of fundamental research, not at all, but the fellowship kind of gives you the opportunity to basically be embedded with an agency or some sort of other private nonprofit or NGO and have them be active. Collaborators or contributors to your research, which is very uncommon for you know PhD students to. Able to do. And so I just loved it. I had a really great time for my postdoc doing that kind of work. And Brook is a great place to do it. Rue Rosenblum's lab was fantastic for that. The department, SBOM, is also fantastic. I got to work in the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology. So all of it was just a fantastic time for me to have two years to play with frogs and turtles and learn some new skills.
0: How did the PhD compare to the postdoc? Yeah, you know, the
1: postdoc was way more chill than a PhD. You know, I yeah, I enjoyed my PhD. I had a great experience. I, I enjoyed my lab. I enjoyed my, my, Department in my university, it was, you know, I had a good time. But there still is the, I'm assuming it's this way for most people. But you know, when you have to go through your qualifying exams, and you have to defend your pace you turn in the final thesis. There is like there are these very hard barriers that can seem daunting or insurmountable or just kind of overwhelming a lot of times. And I think like there's. N- a postdoc is a different kind of stress, but you don't have the same kind of stress. It's a lot more laid back. I guess the bias because two years of my funding came from a fellowship which is very independent. But you basically get a show and, and like kind of do whatever you want on a given day and just do science that you are stoked on for your postdoc time. And I was stoked on my science for my PhD for sure, but those kind of hurdles that were definitely on the landscape were a different kind of stress and kind of anxiety-inducing sort of thing. I think that the other big part that is different from a grad time to a postdoc for me at least was a PhD. Long enough period of time where I feel like you have maybe it's enough work to hang yourself with but you know time to learn a lot more new skills right? you can just do a deep dive from the literature and just read a ton of papers and learn this skill or that skill as you need to a postdoc, when you start it, is you know, anywhere from one year to three years, if you're really lucky, um, which is no time at all. And basically, as soon as you hit the ground, you're basically looking for your next thing, which could be a faculty job or a postdoc, because you know, a funding cycle is a year away at any point in time. So you're always looking for the next thing. And so your brain's in a thousand directions trying to find not necessarily a new skill, but necessarily a new job basically right away. So that's definitely its own kind of stress and anxiety.
0: Do you feel that your PhD has had more impact on you as like a scientist or your postdoc or they're kind of equal. Or you've taken different things away from them.
1: Boy, that's an interesting question. I think a very, very different. It's kind of hard to compare what's had more or less impact, you know, I think you have a little bit of a, when you're a postdoc, a little more of a leadership role in a lab than you might as a graduate student because you have some hypothetically some degree of of wisdom or experience to pass on to the students who are in your current lab when you're a postdoc. And so I think you feel... You know, if there is a hierarchy, if, if you believe in that within a lab structure, you're kind of a little higher up in the hierarchy, and so you can have a little more influence that way. I think my PhD gave me a lot more time to think broadly than my postdoc did because I had a lot more of that time, and you're forming questions, and so you're kind of you know throwing you know lines in different different ways, trying to figure out what you actually want to do for your PhD, and so you're just taking in tons of information and try, you know developing a pile of questions, which you really do for your postdoc. But I think when I was doing a postdoc at Berkeley. I, there's a couple of scenarios we had where just I gotta do these really amazing deep dives with my lab group and some other folks and just really get to have a strong collaboration for multiple months at a time. So for one, for you in a year, that just, I think, allowed me to learn and get better skills at thinking critically. And like as a team, critiquing, like iteratively critiquing something and making a kind of finished product that was super constructive for our broader community. And I think having that sort of deep dive in my postdoc was really formative to me. I think it actually has been helpful to me for my position so far in government, because sometimes you have to just really synthesize information real fast for a group of people and figuring out how to kind of iteratively do that in a short time frame was very valuable for my postdoc time. So yeah, I think that, you know, broad thinking from a PC time, a little more uh, narrow, but deep dive sort of work for my postdoc, both formed me in very different kind of
0: ways. If I asked you what you did science wise at your PhD, what would be your go to answer for that?
1: My PhD, the kind of conclusion of it was that it completely undid my master's, which is totally yeah. wild. So there's a whole group of uh, pollutants out there and as endocrine type chemicals that kind of get a lot of buzz buzzwords in the, in the media a lot um, that impact hormone regulation. And we originally thought we were finding a pile of, pile of these chemicals in urban areas that are causing frogs to switch sex. And hypothetically, frogs are not supposed to switch sex. If you're on the radio, you can't see me with quotes over, over that word. By the conclusion of my PhD, I developed some new, molecular tools and a bunch of really intensive surveys and experiments and found that frogs just switch sex naturally all over the place in the middle of the most pristine, uncontaminated places. And you know, genetic males turn to females, genetic females turn to males, doing it everywhere at equal frequencies. And there is no relationship at all with you know the amount of pollution or urban development that causes it to happen. And so it was a really kind of interesting switch in mindset of these pollutants are causing frogs to switch sex to Frogs quit check. So that's totally cool and natural. I think that's a pretty cool way And my PhD is undoing my pre my previous work in narratives with a really kind of broader and more inclusive understanding of biodiversity than we, you know, knew about five years before.
0: Were you happy that you were undoing it at the time? Or <laughs> I, was, I don't think, you know, I think I was learning. So I don't
1: think I was happy or unhappy. I think it was just cool to have had started with something like that thought worked one way and then realized it works in a completely different kind of way yeah. and i feel pretty confident in that answer that you weren't messing it up but then you know but bi- you know biology surprises you
0: i don't know was it like hard to change your mindset or like let the data change your mindset or were you like no and then like i need more data like how hard yeah. that to happen yeah, you know,
1: this is a broader conversation, but I actually throughout my PhD engaged a lot more with the social sciences, so science technology studies, uh, history of science, feminist and queer studies. Which I think a lot of you actually have a broader perspective on the natural science that I was doing, so that I became no longer surprised because you know you're able to kind of realize that sometimes the frameworks we have in science can um, constrain the way you approach research and be able to kind of take insights from in the humanities and social sciences allowed me to have a broader perspective of what I expected or you know, told me to not even have expectations, Let the frogs tell me what they wanted to tell me. Um, and so I think I was just jazzed to learn something new at that point in time.
0: As we end the interview, is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we go? Enjoy
1: your PhD from, you know, even for other stressors. How cool is that you get five years to sit there and learn uh, and make and new make knowledge for others to learn from down the road. If you know PhD is not what you're enjoying, maybe don't Trudge on for the sake of trudging on, but it should be something you enjoy and love because it's really cool. You get to be paid there to to learn. There are a lot of barriers for a lot of folks. I definitely can recognize that. But um, as much as possible, try to enjoy that. If you need to find something else in life to kind of keep you floating, whether that's, you know, going to the gym or going for hikes or, you know, joining a band, do that, too, to, you know, be a whole person. But hopefully you enjoy your PhD. It should be a,
0: a fun time. Today, I was speaking with Max Lambert, who was a postdoc here at Berkeley, but is now working as a senior scientist at the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Thanks for being on the show, Max. Thank you. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.